Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Macalino podcast. I uh, hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and hoping, if you listened to this before then, that you have a Happy New Year. I guess that that can still go if you listen to it on January 2nd. I can still wish you a happy 2022. Um, this will be the last episode of the podcast for 2021. Uh, of course, this was our, our uh, inaugural season so to speak, of the podcast, and uh, I do want to thank all of you who have listened. Uh, it's been quite a journey uh, from February to now. Um, I've gotten some amazing guests on the podcast, uh, made some friends, um, just really awesome to connect with so many different people uh, over the past year. Um, I've said that uh you know, humbly, my goal this year when I started, I said, I'm going to put out 50 episodes, whether I have to do them all myself or whether people will be willing to come on. Uh, and obviously, I've had plenty of willing guests. Um, well, maybe some I threatened, um, but <laughs> mostly willing guests uh, to come on and uh, had some great conversations. Um you know, and uh, some some of these guests uh, will be revisiting the podcast in 2022. Um, you know, just some awesome uh, experiences and uh, people that I've gotten to meet along the way. So thank you to all of my listeners and my guests. Um, my my goals when I started, again, was 50 episodes. And I thought, you know what, if I get a thousand downloads, a thousand listens, um, you know, that will be a success just to get to get going. Um, I was way off in my expectations. This will end up being my 54th episode. So I was pretty close on that goal. And uh, the goal will remain the same next year, pop out at least 50 episodes. Um, I think I will probably be gone for a week and then I'll start popping them out in mid January, 2022. Uh, I may do a solo recap episode or, or something to that extent. Uh, oops. Sorry about that. I almost started playing a podcast on my phone. Um, two of my former guests did a podcast together, uh, Stefan Satani and Dana Pereira. So that's what I'm currently listening to and almost played on my podcast. Uh, you can check out a comedy advice podcast. <laughs> Free plug there. Um, but no, I, I, you know, ultimately I ended up getting uh, Almost, and I very well may cross this threshold before then, uh, 10,000 downloads of just the audio podcast alone uh, and several hundred more people on YouTube uh, viewed the few episodes I put up on there. Uh, by the way, if you do want more episodes on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, that would make me more inclined to post uh, the video. Otherwise, I don't like looking at myself, so I don't assume other people like looking at me. Um, before I hop into this guest, who was awesome, uh, Tim Tortora, uh, he has a long background in kind of the business side, uh, the financing and physical logistics of filmmaking. So we talk a lot about uh, movies, and uh, I ask him advice, you know, kind of personal advice almost to an extent, but I think a lot of people are in a similar situation where if you think you you've got something good, what's what's the next step? What do you do from there to to get the right eyes on it. Also ask them as far as, you know, what should investors look for uh, and some very good advice there. He's got a book. If you really want to get into, 
uh, film production or, or or the creative side or the business side, something I think you probably want to pick up uh, from his website. Uh, he also worked uh, with um, on uh, Jackass the movie, which was a movie that uh, I watched with many of my friends um, and uh, had some funny stories uh, about. Uh, well, you, you'll just have to listen to catch the uh, the stories uh, about his experience there. And uh, quickly, before I dive into this, I do want to give a, a rest in peace to John Madden. Uh, John Madden passed away yesterday at 85. Um, it, it really struck me with John Madden and, and before he died, but now that he has passed away, it might as well bring it up now. It struck me how many, how successful he was in so many ventures. You know, my dad uh, was a Raiders, is a Raiders fan. Uh, so, you know, my dad growing up, he was the coach of the Raiders from 69 to 78, 10 seasons. He won 103 games is the highest winning percentage by a head coach in NFL history. 759 win percentage. He's a hall of famer, obviously. Uh, he won the 1976 Super Bowl with those Raiders. Um, so he was a tremendously great coach, uh, in 10 years, not really that long of a time. Uh, in a in a coaching career, frankly, uh, then you know me growing up, there was two things with John Madden. There was uh, the number one thing was he, he was a broadcaster. He was the color analyst uh, with Pat Summerall for the longest time, and then with Al Michaels. Um, and John Madden was just if his voice was there, you knew it was a big game uh, or a Thanksgiving Cowboys game <laughs> tended to happen quite often. Uh, and he was great at it. He, you know, boom, you know, he was a larger than life personality. And then, of course, his video game franchise, which, you know, who knows how much he had to do with that ultimately. Um, but I even also remember watching the All Madden team uh, uh, specials awards that he gave out every year. Um, just an awesome guy. And then even my son, you know, I text him uh, last night and he texts back this morning. Oh, that's sad. Um, and he said, well, now who's the greatest NFL coach alive? So my son even knows John Madden, uh, I think, firstly, because of, you know, the video games. Uh, but then also, you know, he, he's into football history, so he likes uh, records and coaches and, and all that old historical stuff. It's almost like he got it from his father. So anyways, just a long, uh, successful life for Mr. Madden and uh, – condolences to his family but a long and uh awesome life that uh, john madden lived so anyways enjoy the episode with tim tortora hey if you want to hear more of my voice by the way uh I, i've mentioned this before i'll mention it again i do a almost weekly podcast for this website called fl teams it's bolts and bats in the bay I used up all my creativity on that podcast name. It's kind of a summary of the week for the Rays and the Lightning. Get it, the bolts, the Lightning, and the bats, the Rays. Yeah, you got it. Uh, so if you're interested in that, that's at uh, FL Teams. Uh, and also I did a, uh, a breakdown with uh, Jeremiah of the uh, Dolphins Saints game because he has a Dolphins podcast, and I, of course, am a Saints fan. And... Um, was rooting for a bunch of players that I'd never seen before that were signed off the street the day of the game. So that was real fun. Thanks, Roger Goodell. So, anywho, 
if you want to hear more from me, you can always check me out on FL Teams. Uh, anyways, enjoy me and Tim Tortora. And now I welcome Tim to Tortora to the Jeff McAlino podcast. Tim, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, excited to talk to you. You've got a, a interesting uh, background in uh, in film, um, and uh, that's that's uh, you've got quite a background. How did you get uh, started? I think I think I had heard it was you took a college course and things kind of led from there. But how did you kind of fall into the industry, so to speak? Well, I from the time I grew up in Southern California, and I grew up in Orange County, which is about in, in a place called Fullerton, which is about, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 minute drive from the center of Hollywood, right? And when I was a kid driving past the studios, going to the theater with my parents, you know, I got schlepped to all kinds of theater because my mom loved it. Um, and when I say theater, meaning, uh, you know, stage plays, uh, I remember driving past the studios thinking to myself, what's in there? And I want to know and I want to work in it. And I was 12 watching the Oscars and the Grammys and all the award shows on TV and I was and the Emmys. And I was like, what is this thing? And I was always interested in it. And uh, I went to school uh, undergrad as a, a as a, a musician, essentially. And I, um, I, I just I was always curious about it. And I had to take this recording engineering class because I was in quotes, a music student, which I really wasn't. I was just a drummer. And um, I wasn't going to do that for a living. It just was I had to pick a major. So that's what I chose. And this recording class taught me about the technical side of and the physicality of making art and making music. And I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And I, I was working in the studio doing my project for my first semester recording class. And there was this woman named Martha who was a, uh, an intern at a recording studio in Orange, California, that was originally built by Jose Feliciano and was bought by a man called Dan Van Patten, who uh, was the founding member of a band called Berlin. He was the drummer. Oh, wow. And she was like, do you want to come be an intern at the studio? They're looking for someone. I'm like, yeah, yeah okay, whatever. I'll go do that. And I did. And I, I became sort of like my second job in addition to school. I was a prep cook in a, in a cafeteria in the university I went to. And I spent nights at the studios and I went to school in the mornings and I worked in the restaurant in the afternoons and, and I studied in between. And that was my grind for like three years until I got on at, to work at a, a record label that was owned by a client of mine. And I became a production manager. And then I got a job um, working at the record label doing, you know, everything having to do with production. And, and it was fascinating. And I wanted, I was getting a degree in advertising. I, I later figured out I wasn't going to be a good musician. I didn't want to practice as much as the guys who practice six hours a day who were better than me. And I just, I became a business student and I got a degree in advertising. And um, I just was like, okay, I'm going to go, I think I want to work in advertising. So I, I sent my resume out to the marketing departments of the record labels. There were like maybe two dozen of them. And I was going to send it out to the movie studios at the same time, but I sent them to the marketing people at the record labels. And I got a letter back from Rob Gold, who was the head of marketing at A&M Records. And he wrote on my resume and my cover letter and said, Tim, although you sound like a bright guy, I could never consider hiring someone who can't write a flawless cover letter. He mailed it back to me. And I had two, I had a typo and a, there was a questionable one at the end or at, 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 at the beginning of the letter, it said, Dear Mr. Gold, instead of comma, I put semicolon, which is debatable in the 
in the language, right? But I had a typo in the third paragraph in the last of my cover letter. I fixed the typos and I sent it out to the movie studios and I got a job in advertising at an agency working for Columbia Pictures and then later also uh, TriStar Pictures. And that's how my career began. That happened over about a five-year span while I was in undergrad uh, as a college student. Wow. And then it went on from there. Yeah, and you, you've always stuck to the, uh, the business side of movies. That uh, Oh, and, and to, to jump back, funny enough, you mentioned Berlin. I have a, a, a I think it's my dad's cousin, Virginia Macalino, same last name. She was the lead singer for Berlin for a couple of years. Oh, is enough. that true? Yeah, yeah, small world. <laughs> I just, I just had to Google it while we were talking to make sure I was thinking of the right band, but I was correct, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Did she live in Southern California? Uh, that I don't know. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. I just, yeah, she dated one of the Ramones. I know for a long time, I met him when <laughs> I was a little kid and I had no clue who he was. Of course I was like right. five That's years awesome. old. And when, uh, I, I think he died 10 years ago or something. My dad's like, Oh, you met him. I'm like, I did. I love the Ramones. I never knew that. <laughs> the Ramones changed my life. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it would have been cool to know when he was alive that I had met the guy, but <laughs> that's funny. I used to get in so much trouble because I was failing in history in the 11th grade. And my mom is like, you know, all the lyrics to the Ramones album from top to bottom, but you can't memorize dates. What's going on? Used to make her nuts. <laughs> I'm like, I'm bored, mom. I'm bored. I got to, I need to, you got to give me something that's interesting. This is not interesting. You know, if the Ramones put the dates in their songs, I'd remember them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's... back to your point, I did come up in the business side. That's, that's the track I came up in. And I started in the trenches of making records. I worked on Poison's first record, Look, who, uh, Look What the Cat Dragged In. And being in the studio and watching music being made and then watching it become this crazy sensation, right? I mean, those guys sold millions of records and, you know, turned into total fucking derelicts, but whatever, that's a whole nother story. But watching the business go from creation and then seeing other musicians come through that were just as talented and just as broke as they were at the time. I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a musician. I don't want to be an artist. I, I, I don't want to practice as much as the guys who are better than me. And I don't want to be really good at whatever I do. And I don't want to practice that much. I don't want to have to be a kiss ass, which is a plenty of that as in that job. Cause there's lots of people vying for the same spot. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be on the guy on that side of the glass where you're performing. I just felt like a monkey with symbols going, kink, 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 kink. you know, you wind up the toy and you just play the same fucking song over and over. And it just, it didn't really feed my soul. I loved making music. I loved being in the trenches, working out the technicalities of it, working out the problems being in a live mix in a, in a, in a room with 18,000 people in it. And the mix is shit. It sounds terrible. And you got to figure out in eight measures on the fly, how to make it sound like something. Otherwise you don't lose your job. Wow. That to me was magic. Right. And that is what a, a house mixer has to do or a stage mixer. So doing some of that and seeing it and being in the background of it at a really young age, I always knew I wanted to be in the business part of it. And I wanted to be in the technical part of it. And that's the, that's the side I came up in. And as a result, I became a CFO and a line producer. Well, I'm a CFO now, but I came up through a finance, physical logistics, line producing, production executive track. And that's just kind of how my brain is built. But at the same time, I grew up an artist. I grew up around artists. And that 
those people who create and create extraordinary things, whether you're standing in front of a camera or you're making pictures inside a camera, that to me was, I have such respect for those people because A, it's hard. It's really hard to make a living as an artist. And I don't mean the job is hard. The job is easy. It's the easiest fucking thing you'll ever find. Any actor who says I work really hard is full of shit. They memorize shit, they show up and they read the lines. Mm. Um, that's an easy job. And people kiss your ass all day long, all the time. And if you're famous, even more so. But getting to that place is really, really hard work. And I have a great amount of respect for those people. And, uh, and the same with artists who create, because I was around it, I understand it. Um, and I just, I, I just found this place where I was able to operate on the business side. I, when I, I ran physical production for Oprah Winfrey's film and TV unit in LA for five years. And the reason I had that job for five years is because I never stuck my nose in the creative. My boss and Oprah Winfrey had their ideas about what they wanted to create for television. They knew what they wanted to do. And my job was to execute it. And I stayed in my lane. I did my thing. And I made sure the projects were delivered on budget, on time, and at a level of quality that my bosses required. And that was something I learned at a really young age. And I was, I was lucky to find out in my 20s. I mean, I was running Oprah's film unit by the, by the time I was 30. That's when I first got that job. So I was lucky at an early age, at 23, 24, 25, I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to be a creative and I wanted to pursue business and finance. And I threw myself into that part of the business and I became really good at it. And then I laid into that for the rest of my career. I stuck to what I was good at once I figured out what I was good at. And that's, I think that's the job in any industry, but in particular in Hollywood, just because you want to be an actor doesn't mean you're going to be. Just because you want to be a functioning artist doing whatever doesn't mean you're going to be. Find the thing you're good at and lay into it and just do that thing for the rest of your career until you can find something else that feeds your soul. You know, there's, what's the phrase? You do the nine to five so you can do the, so you have, you do the nine to five so you get the ability to do the five to nine. And that's the thing at night you love. So, right. And I really believe that. And especially in Hollywood, it's, you, you really have to figure that out. I, I love one thing you said with the, I, I think it's the perfect dichotomy that I don't think happens all the time. You just, I'm, I'm not touching the creative. I'll handle all the business stuff. You go be an artist. I'll handle all the, the stuff. I don't know. I feel like that's not always the case with some uh, networks or production companies or studios. Well, again, my words are probably not uh, maybe accurate semantic wise, but I think sometimes it, it seems like there's a little too much of the business side leaking into the creative is that something uh, obviously you didn't do it but is that something you notice sometimes yeah i mean i said the people who come up in the creative whether you're standing in front of a camera or putting an image in it as in a cinematographer or director of photography whether you're doing either one of those jobs or anything in between writing directing acting producing whatever working on crew that is a creative endeavor um if you become and let me take a step back. That's a creative endeavor. And getting from the, the toil in the trenches, making no money, working on crap projects, having to kiss someone's ass to get up into those senior levels or to get to a place where you're consistently working, that is a, a hard job. And that is the job when you're young. Um, and most executives at networks and studios who take these jobs at the, at, in those places who are making decisions about creative, 
they never really got in the trenches. They were, they're, they're not artists, they're frustrated artists. And they graduated from some program, they went into whatever that job is, and they don't understand that their job isn't to be the artist. Their job is to make decisions about the artist and let the artist do their thing. And what I learned, and I learned this working for Harpo, and this is something Oprah actually said, which was, I was complaining about an executive being passionless and stupid. And I was complaining about a, a director being overly passionate. And she says to me, do you want the director not to be passionate? And I was like, what? Oh, you're right. I don't, I do want that. And it, as an executive, you have to figure out how to manage the bad ideas coming from creative and convince them to abandon them and find the good ideas and convince them to lay into them. That's the job of an executive. And I don't think many executives in Hollywood operate from that perspective. I learned it from someone at a really young age and who's extremely famous and really good at it. Um, but I don't think a lot of executives do. And I think they stick their nose in places and they, they give bullshit notes. You hear about it all the time. Writers and creators get noted to death. Well, yeah, it's because those people don't understand what it means to create. They just know that what they're looking at isn't quite right. And in fact, a director I worked with many years ago made a really astute comment. He said, you'll get a note about a line or a cut or a place. It says, can you take five frames off of this cut? It takes me out of the picture. Or can you make this line say something else? And they give you, they actually give the writer the line that they want in that place. And he said, it's not the note. The note is telling you there's something wrong in that place, either in the cut or in the, in the writing or in the draft but it's not necessarily the note you need to fix. You have to figure out what's the problem that generated the note that that passionless, visionless executive, who's probably right about there being a problem, they just don't even know exactly what the problem is. You as a creator have to figure out what that visionless and passionless person is saying so that you can actually fix the problem to solve their problem they're having. That's the job of creatives. And it's hard work, it really is. And this is a collaborative business and the people who are in the position to give you notes, they got the money and you got to do what they ask. And it is their money. It's their time and it's their air and it's their platform. It's their streaming platform. You've got to do what they want. And if you want to figure out how to get your creative ideas across, you have to figure out how to manage into that. Unfortunately, that is the job. And too many creatives blow up and ruin their careers because they're tired of it. And, you know, yeah. good luck. Now, uh, I'm interested in this from multiple angles, so I'll start with the uh, narcissistic one. My, my listeners have heard me talk. I've, I've uh, been working on screenplays for the past couple of years, uh, some by myself, a couple with, with writing partners and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. the, the thing I always think, and it's not just for me, but I think a lot of people have similar thoughts and ideas of, well, I've got this great idea, or I've even written this great screenplay, but I don't know what to do. And, and again, speaking from my own experience, the only thing I know about how movies get made and stuff is stuff from like Entourage uh, or Seinfeld with the pilot. <laughs> uh, right. I clearly don't know. I mean, I'm assuming those are maybe some based in reality somewhat, but sure. um, probably not nearly as much <laughs> as, uh, as a, a person uh, would face. So I guess what would... Uh, what do you think someone in that situation should do and to avoid 
I guess it's a combination of questions here. So uh, sorry about this. Bear with me. But uh, I, I know that there are instances where people might just buy it, buy a screenplay from you and shelf it forever, or they might right. take all control and completely bastardize it. And then your name's still going to be attached to it. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess my question would be from the business perspective, what's the savvy way to handle something like that? If you think you've got gold, you don't necessarily want to just give it away for for a, a one time check and you know whatever happens to it happens to it. Well, there's kind of three questions there. Let me start with the last one first, which is when you go to work for a studio or you sell a producer a piece of material, uh, you are selling them the right to everything, unless you're under the WGA agreement, which is the Writers Guild of America. There's some reversion rights that happen over time, and there's also some uh, reserved rights that you might have that are inherent in the guild agreement. Uh, so if you're working outside of that situation, uh, you, you kind of don't have a choice if you don't have any power. And if you don't have any power, you're likely not a WGA member. And every executive is going to tell you, and it's used as a point of leverage to try to get something for cheap all the time. But every executive is going to tell you, you got to sell them. You got to make the first sale. When you do, that sale is going to um, uh, be taken over by another writer that has a name and you may or may not get credit on it. And the, the person who has the name is going to rewrite your material. Um, it is the nature of our business. It is the contract you sign. You're giving away all your rights unless they're reserved through some kind of guild uh, agreement that allows them to re stay, re uh, re uh, allows you to retain them. Um, so you just kind of got to get over that. That's part of the learning curve. I have, I, to your comment about a concept being gold, I have yet to see a piece of a new writer come to Hollywood, have and demonstrate gold. It just doesn't exist. It's, this is a process that you learn through repetition and the repetition of doing it over and over in an environment where you're learning from people who buy material. The only time I've ever and this happened coincidentally. I happened to work on The Fisher King and I was amazed by the screenplay. When I read it, I was a very junior person working in marketing at uh, Columbia and TriStar early in my career. I read the draft. I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing script. I later worked with Deborah Hill as a director. She was a director when I was a PA on Dream On. She directed an episode and I was sitting around talking to her about uh, The Fisher King because I was obsessed. I love this movie and I love the writing. And she's had said that when Richard Legravignez brought in that draft um, uh, of the Fisher King, that, and that's who wrote it, was Richard. And, and she said, when that draft came in, it was perfect. There was nothing I, could, I needed to do with it. It was amazing. And I said, does that happen often? She said, never. That's the only time I've ever had that happen. And she had been through hundreds, thousands of drafts in her career as an executive, as a producer, as a development executive. So it's pretty uncommon to find the writer that is amazing and has gold. You may have a good idea. You may have written a technically proficient draft, but the likelihood that you're going to be uh, performing at a level where you can pitch the other writers and the other creators in town, it's pretty uncommon. Um, it's a job you learn over time and, and with skill. But that being said, um, there's two other comments in there, two other things I want to touch on. Number one, if you are that person who wants to write, get your stuff into competition. You will get, if, if 
when you're in competition, if you begin to win, you will get noticed by agents and managers who will know where to put you. You may say to yourself, managers and agents are idiots and executives are passionless. They don't understand my brilliance and they won't even look at my material. You're right. That, that could be true, but they're the ones with the control. They're the ones with the money. And until you convince them that you're a writer who can do something for them, uh, you kind of got to play the game. And the game is get noticed and you get noticed by putting your stuff in competition and use the competitions you're entering your material into, use them as a gauge of whether or not you've hit the amateur ranks, right? So using a baseball analogy, the good, the best players rise to the professional leagues, right? They play for the Yankees, the Orioles, the Dodgers, San Francisco, so on, right? Then there's a whole minor league division of triple A ball. And then there's double A and single A ball that kind of runs up through the ranks. Well, use the, 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 the festivals and the competitions in the same way. So if you're entering into the Palm Springs or whatever, St. Louis Film Festival, and you win that one, okay, so you're in the single A's. Then you go up to the next one and you go up to the next one and then you get to maybe Tribeca or Cannes or uh, Toronto or Sundance or Berlin, the big ones, right? Venice. If you can get into those places and win, you are AAA, probably professional writing now. You're at a level where the people who do this for a living are going to recognize you and you're going to do well. So just because you win a stupid you know, stupid's the wrong word. Just because you win a small festival that yeah, that isn't really publicly or widely noticed in the industry doesn't mean you're God's gift to writing. It means you've done well. You've you've delivered a draft that's competent. People recognize your skill. They recognize your talent, and they're going to move you up to the next level. So then move up to the next level and move. And Oliver Stone made a comment I saw in an interview once. He said, "Look, I write something. I spend six months writing it. I will promote it for six months. If I can't get someone to buy it, I move on." I don't spend more than six months on a piece of material. If I, it may come back later that, that I can make a sale, but if I can't make a sale in six months, I, I'm done with that idea. I'm moving on to the next. I have more ideas than I have time to write. So I'm not short of ideas. And I think that's a good benchmark to work from. If you write something, you don't get into competition, you don't get noticed by people, you're a young film a writer, you're aspiring to be a working writer, use the system. You know, get involved and, and, and use that system. The other thing I will say, the last thing I'll say about this, and it's not really, um, it hasn't come to fruition yet, but we're getting super close, and that is direct-to-consumer. When I say direct-to-consumer, I mean, if you've written a draft and you think it's good, but the, stu but the system won't, let, won't even read it, they won't, never mind buying it, they won't even read it. And the reason they won't read it is because there's too much litigation, there's too much opportunity for litigation, so they won't read other people's material unless it's brought to them by a lawyer or an agent or a manager to protect the person reading it from the person who wrote it, right? So if you think you've done that, self-publish it, promote it, put it out there, direct to consumer. There's an opportunity for the first time in the history of the human race and filmmaking to be selling content direct to consumers. That is not an easy endeavor. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's available to you for the first time. You use Facebook and Instagram, you know, all the channels. Use those to promote your material. You need a website. You need a way of, uh, of, of pay gating or paywalling your material. And you may be giving away your material for free, but selling swag. You might be selling hats, t-shirts, NFTs. Could be anything, right? So the first time in the human race, we have an ability as creators to sell directly to consumers. And there's probably 100 consumers who will buy your shit. 
the job is to is as a creator you have to create material such that people will open their wallets to pay you for it because there are hundreds millions billions of hours of content that they can watch for free it can be videos on youtube it could be on netflix it could be anywhere and you're competing against the studios that are making events out of their titles that's the world you're living in so you may have a brilliant idea and the system doesn't want you because you haven't demonstrated a skill to understand the system to work outside of it until you can get noticed and if your goal is to go work inside the system then that's maybe a way you can work into that system but you've got to make a living to begin with and the way i say i and in fact i just recently released a book uh, this past November about that very thing. How do you get integrated into the system? It's a how to, how do I build a network? How do I get connected? And it comes, there's a community attached to it and a, a Q and A that goes along with it. The book is 27 bucks. It's 200 pages. It walks you through the process of what do I want to work on? Who do I want to work with? And how do I get connected to them? That's the job. And it's, it's a business of networking and referrals. And if you don't get the referral from someone who's already in the business working at a studio or a network or a producer, you're never going to get the job. There's no place to lob a resume. Yeah, it's a, a, a lot of interesting stuff. So it's, it sounds almost like uh, this should be the time that the independent films have a much greater chance of success. Uh, I think the biggest critique of big studio films is they've fallen into almost a cookie cutter. Uh, yeah. And look, from a business perspective, they're making money. You know, yeah. why not make another superhero movie? It makes money. That's good Absolutely. business. And they're <laughs> going to do that until they stop making movie money. Yeah. And, and move on to the next thing. And they won't ever stop. And they should. I mean, look, I don't I'm not shitting on Marvel because I, I enjoy their product myself even. Um, yeah. But yeah, why would they go? OK, we don't care about this artsy fartsy thing that might be a brilliant film. We can just pop out a new Spider-Man movie and make 80 times the money like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if um, it we're only 80 times the money. Yeah. It's more like 100 times or a yeah. thousand times the money. Well, yeah, I especially Spider-Man. <laughs> well, Spider-Man just did a billion dollar worldwide weekend. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's real money. And that billion is in the front end. So for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, that waterfall revenue is going to start to decline. It's going to be, you know, from the top left down to the right, instead of from the bottom left up to the right. But that curve or that line has a consistent pattern. So whatever you earn in the first weekend, you can expect it to be three times as much. That is a pattern that has held, even after the pandemic, that's that pattern starting to come back. We're starting to see the three to one opening weekend does a hundred million. You're going to make three does it three fifty. You're going to make a billion or whatever the, whatever the, the pattern is, it's starting to come back. It's very consistent and that will make money for a very long time and spin off other things until they don't make money. And then they'll go away and they'll pick the next one. The, the studios, everyone wants to say this, not everyone, I should say the creatives who can't find their way into the system want to say that the studios are full of shit and they don't understand good material. Bullshit. These are the smartest guys in the room and right. girls. They understand their market. They understand where content comes from, how to create it, how to market it, and how to get it out there. That is a skill. You have to create, you have to market, you have to distribute. They know how to do that and they do it every single week, 52 times a year. 
and they see what works, they see what doesn't, and they lay into what works and they just cookie cutter it. When something works, they go clunk, next one, clunk, next one, different names, slightly different twist. You know, I forget who said it, but there's essentially seven or eight basic storylines onto which you add a new backdrop and new names and a slight twist. But essentially there's only a, a dozen different ideas in terms of story. And that's not a new concept. This goes back to Shakespeare. So the movie industry is a formulaic thing. If you want to break the mold, if you want to be Frank Zappa in movies, that man completely broke the, the 1950s, what I call barbershop quartet, which is essentially what 50s music was, right? But with a guitar and a, you know big hair and big lapels, right? So if you want to break that mold like Zappa did, you can, but you're not going to sell 200 million records. You're going to sell maybe a million records or 200,000 records. So can you build a business around that? 100%. You're just not going to have people lick you up and down on the red carpet and drive you around, you know, in limousines, you know, doing whatever you want to do in the back seat. Is that business is probably going to be a studio business and you have to play that game. And that game is a hundred men, a few women. That's the game that's changing for sure. But it has been for the past 50 years, a hundred dudes and, you know, probably 20 women who are, who are in decision-making spaces, places, and you have to figure out how to navigate that system. And that, that means getting into the system, learning who the players are and figuring out where the money comes from, and then networking with those people and becoming friends with them. That's the job. That's the job of a writer, director, actor, and producer. So, and it's, it's a skill. Yeah. And, and producer, uh, <laughs> producer is one of those fun titles that, um, you know, I, I think anyone, I like to pay attention to the credits only because if there's words on the screen, I read them, not because I'm, I really care necessarily, but, right. uh, uh, producer is such an interesting title to me because it seems like there's a lot of people titled producers, a lot of them being the big actors in the movie uh, or the TV series. Um, uh, it's a, it seems like there's a, a million different people can be considered producers and they I'm sure do many different things. And some of them probably do nothing except for act and just have a big enough name that they, I assume that gives them a little more on the back end or something. Um, so um, again, I'll, I'll, there's a couple things there. I'll do the last one first. So yeah, there's lots of people who get credit. And sometimes it's just a way of giving them more value without having to give them money. It's actually the opposite. They're not oh. getting any back end. They're just getting, you know, Bradley Cooper. We can't pay. We don't want to pay him more than $3 million. I'm making a number up. I have no idea what he gets paid. We're paying him $3 million. But, and, and this is a small picture. We want to give him $500,000 to come do the movie. It's only a few days work. And we'll give him a producer credit. Please come. Um, that's how that kind of stuff happens. Gotcha. Or, you know, they have an overhead deal and their overhead deal contemplates what their producer credit are because they're not just showing up to act. They're actually participating in the writing and the, and the revision and the development of a particular idea. Like in the case of the star is born and using Bradley Cooper as an example, but um, there are a lot of producers and they're really, this is something I teach in my book, which is how do you ferret through a feature film that has 15 credits, executive producers, line producers, producer, producer, associate producer, um, co-producer. What does all that mean? Well, 
It just means that somebody was attached to a piece of material somehow or somebody, a piece of material or a person somehow or in some way. But the truth is you have to figure out which one of those people are just what we call a vanity credit. So they're getting credit for some reason because they know somebody. They may have gotten paid or they're not getting paid when they're getting a credit. Um, and you have to go through the credits of a movie and then clip through those people's credits using a, a, a movie database to see if they've made more than one or two or three movies. If they made one, it's a vanity credit. If they made 10 and it's all connected to the same writer, they may be a manager who's connected to that writer or actor or director. So you have to try to figure out from the outside who is a player and who isn't? Who's somebody who just showed up and got a credit? It happens all the time. Less in television, a lot less in Europe. You see a lot less of that in Europe than you do in the US. Um, but nonetheless, um, you have to figure that out. And that's one of the techniques I teach in my book is how do you actually figure out from the credits who to try to get connected to and become a barnacle on them once you get into the industry? And that's an important point to make is you have to get into the industry so you can get the referral and that and getting into the industry is going to come in some assistant job. You know, you're not going to go from being a film school graduate or an undergraduate in any kind of thing to becoming a director or writer, producer, anything. You're going to start as someone's assistant, whether it's, you know, working in wardrobe or you're working with the, uh, the ADs on the set, or you're working for a writer, a director, a producer's assistant, or a production assistant working for the, um, the coordinator and the UPM in actually physically in production. Those are the jobs you're going to start at. And those are the jobs you should be starting at because you've got to make a living. You're not going to, unless you're a ne'er-do-well or not a ne'er-do-well, then let's say you're a dilettante and you have a silver spoon and your parents are paying for you to come and you can do the thing for three years for free and not make a fucking dime. Those people are few and far between. You got to make a living. You gotta, you're not going to make a great living but you're going to make a living. You're going to be in the system. You're going to be able to talk to and impress the people who are in key positions who can pull you up into the next job. And this is a business where you need to get pulled up from somebody in power into the next job. If you do not, you will never move forward. My, dub, my day came when Kate Forte saw me as a production accountant on um, a movie called Before Women Had Wings, which was the first in a series of six movies we delivered to ABC of the Oprah Winfrey Presents. She was the head of Harpo Films in LA. She was the president of the company. And she's like, oh, I want to give that guy a job. And honestly, I think she gave me that job because she couldn't find someone who had feature credits who would come work for the money she had. And I was young and willing to work for the money she had. And I had some feature credits. And that's why I think that's why I wound up getting that job. But um, that's, that, that is how this business works. It is a referral and someone's going to pull you up. You got to start somewhere. Yeah, and one, one thing someone told me before uh, and this doesn't apply to maybe like Harvey Weinstein uh, situations, but don't say no to an opportunity. Uh, sure. You, uh, to put a finer point on that, don't say no to an opportunity as long as it's not illegal or immoral. Those are the two caveats <laughs> I put on it. You got to sleep with yourself at night, right? You got to you got to you got to go to bed at night and be willing to wake up in the morning and go, God damn it, what did I just agree to, right? Number one. And number two, if you're a sleep around, you're going to get the reputation for being a sleep around and no one's going to take you seriously. So think twice about that. You, I don't care what you do. If that's how you want to make your living, that's how you want to make a reputation, do it. I don't care. Who am I to tell you not to? But I think you got to be careful that you don't you know, get a reputation for that. And there's a famous 
um, woman whose name I forget, who ruined um, uh, the head of uh, Warner Brothers' career. I can't remember his name at the moment, Kevin something. And then also um, Ron Meyer's career at Universal. And she was working her way around town, working at all the big studio executives, sleeping her way around town. She's never really gone anywhere. She's worked on some stuff because the people she was sleeping with got her jobs. But um, I don't even know her name. Uh, but, you know, that might be an example of something where you say, you know, maybe that's not the best way to get connected in the industry. I don't know. It's up to you. Yeah, it, it can get you connected, but ultimately you, you, you might need some talent or skill. To... Well, I wouldn't go that far. I work with some pretty untalented people. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, you, you, uh, you were involved in Jackass, correct? <laughs> I did. Those guys are not untalented. They're extremely talented. I, I, uh... Yeah, I did. They they all they all seem very funny and uh, that's one movie that's always stuck with me as uh, just my own backstory with the movie. Uh, I watched I, I think it was the first one by myself. I got it at Blockbuster, I, I assume, and watched it by myself. I'm like, this just doesn't feel. I eh. I watched it with friends and I don't think I've ever laughed harder in my life. It's definitely yeah. a very communal movie uh, as opposed to watch a movie to watch by yourself, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I'd agree with you. It is, it's definitely proximity comedy, and it's even funnier in a movie theater filled with people. Yes. Um, I was a production manager on that movie, and I was the production manager who traveled around with the cast. There, were, there was a person in the cleanup after we left wherever we were creating chaos where we, where we were shooting, and there was someone on the front end of it setting it up so that when we got into the places we needed to shoot, it was all pretty much taken care of. And um, working with those guys, it, it was, I was a square peg and around, I was a square peg and a round hole, to be honest. I wasn't, uh, you know, I was there to do a job. I was there for the paperwork and they were, they were just, you know, they're clowns. They are what they do, what they do. And they have an ability to convince people to do things or let them do things that are that is is just unnatural. It's something you really shouldn't be doing, and it's fucking hilarious. And I remember seeing a couple episodes of the TV show, and um, I just thought it was the funniest thing. And my friend Derek Frieda called me up. Actually, I called him. I was looking for work. I'm like, I'm you know I'm I'm out looking for work. I need a job. You got anything? He goes, yeah, maybe this movie's happening. I don't know. I'll call you in a couple of weeks. He calls me up and says, this is happening. Will you come do it? I'm like, yeah, why not? I'll do it, whatever. I'm not doing anything right now. So, and then the next thing I know, I'm working on Jackass and I was traveling around with the, with the cast for like, I don't know, three months, three or four months. And um, the thing that was most interesting about that movie was most actors, when the camera's on, and especially when it's on them and not even on the reverse, they turn on right? They're doing that thing, whatever it is they do that they've made a living doing. Those guys, they're on 24 seven. It never ends. Those cameras are rolling all the time. And the job is picking through 24 hours of material, seven days a week for five months, picking through eight or nine cameras to find the shot that can be turned into a movie. And a lot of that is Jeff Tremaine, who's the director and his editing team and Jeff's visual sense. He's an amazing, I mean, fucking amazing fine artist. This, the kind of art he produces is weird, spectacular, and amazing. And he puts that on camera and he's, he's less of a director and more of an instigator. He's the guy who's like, yeah, there's a little flame over here. Let's go throw some gas on it and see what happens. Turn on the cameras, fellas. At any rate, 
that was a very different filmmaking experience for sure. And um, those guys are very talented. I have to give it to them. They're and and they're they're interesting. They're funny. They're they're you know, they're they're also at the same time being in that grind twenty four seven for three or four months is fucking exhausting. Oh yeah, I would imagine. I can't imagine being them. What they put their bodies through. <laughs> That's a, that's something else. And well, then it's an I, open secret that the drugs and alcohol was supported a lot of that. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I assumed as much. <laughs> <laughs> it's two forty four here, by the way. I know you're on the west coast. <laughs> yeah, it's you know it's five o'clock somewhere in the world. So pour a drink. I, I actually used to have a, uh, used to have a list I kept at my desk at my office job that said when it was five o'clock. So it. Always, always made me feel better. And it was fun to be able to actually say, hey, it's five o'clock in uh, Abu Dhabi. Right. It's beer o'clock somewhere in the world. <laughs> it makes the joke <laughs> that much more authentic when you can actually put a place where it is five o'clock. So true. It's funny. No, the jackass guys, I, I, my, my interesting thing with them is, and I, I do this obviously with the podcast. Um, sometimes it's like, I wonder how much they did that wasn't on camera they're just like you know it'd be funny if we did this <laughs> oh there was a lot of that and sometimes it, it got killed by the insurance people or it got killed by standards and practices at the studio or the network they're like no you can't kids will do that to themselves and you're gonna burn a kid up that kind of yeah thing. there was a lot of that yeah no i i would uh i would imagine that a lot of people uh had had issues arising from trying to replicate jackass stunts but I think they kind of deserve it if they <laughs> hey man it's darwin if you're that stupid <laughs> you're gonna call the herd on your own go for it well i remember one this may have been jackass two though where the dude put his uh his dick in something that looked like a mouse and slid it into a cage with a snake oh, Jesus. and it's just like <laughs> and that's also by the way one of those scenes that, watching it by yourself mm. i'm like what am i watching right now is <laughs> Is this gay porn? <laughs> well, well, actually, my uh, the guy who hired me, Derek Frieda, his mom had said <laughs> at one point he tells a story, and um, I'll tell it anyway, even though he uh, he may not be happy about me telling it openly. But his mom at one point, when he was describing what he was working on, she says to him, "Honey, are you working on porn?" <laughs> He's like, "No, mom, it's on MTV. It's not porn. It's not that bad." Um, but anyway, it, it was kind of funny. So if, uh, you know, if uh, Derek ever runs across this one, sorry, dude, I don't know if you ever had a chance to tell the world, but now I did. Um, at any rate, one thing I will say about speaking of putting your dick in places, there was a there was a really funny thing and to the point of stuff going on in the background all the time that never was always photographed, but never wound up in a movie, at least that I know of, um, or a show. When Steve-O would fall asleep and he could fall asleep anywhere, he would fall asleep in the airport. And when he fell asleep, his mouth would go wide open like he's trying to catch flies. And you could put food on it. You could put a pen in it. You could do anything near it and he wouldn't wake up. Nothing would happen. He would be out cold. But as soon as Chris Pontius would get his dick near his face, because Chris would always try to stick his dick in, in Steve-O's mouth when he fell asleep. And every time Pontius would get like literally six or eight inches within his face with his dick. Steve-O would wake up, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Get. And then Pontius would run away. But it was, it, it was, the guy has 3D radar, man. He'd be dead asleep and you could put anything in his mouth and he wouldn't wake up. 
You'd get Chris Pontius's dick within six inches of his face. He wakes up and he gets angry and chases Chris across the airport. Now, was it just Chris's dick or every dick? Chris? No, it was just Chris. Pontius was the only one who was willing to pull it out in public, I think. <laughs> well, you're, you're taking a big risk that the guy wakes up and bites down, too. I yeah, suppose. the whole thing. But, you know, <laughs> the first couple of times I saw it, I thought it was hilarious. And then as time went on, it became even funnier. And it, it was just it was a sixth sense. Steve-O has a sixth sense for that. And it was the funniest thing. It never wound up in anything, probably because it had involved nudity. But I thought it was one of the funniest things that they ever did. But you know, it never wound up in a movie, at least that I'm aware of. It's got uh, Steve-O's got dick radar. Or I think it's just Chris dick radar. I don't think it, maybe all dicks. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> it was fucking hilarious. Chris has a special odor <laughs> that yeah. wakes him up. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Smelling salts, kind of. <laughs> That's kind of what it is. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, <coughs> uh, I told you I went to church with a bunch of people, so maybe the COVID got me. That's right. <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, so switching gears. I know we've talked a lot about creative and everything from the investment side. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I know some people, and I've also had people contact me about contributing money to make a film, and I'm like, there's all this numbers and math that I'm good at math, but I don't know words. Well, well, that's not, I'm making myself sound like an idiot, but you know, it is what it is, I guess. I get the point. <laughs> uh, how, how do invest in investors avoid getting just robbed basically? Well, um, I actually talk about this in, in my first book about how money grinds down in the business, right? Never so putting aside the uh, investment strategies, which we'll talk about in a second. But just when you hear about a hundred million dollar opening of Spider-Man at the movie theater, right? That hundred million dollar opening starts out being a hundred million dollars, and fifty of it, fifty percent of it, gets to go to the theater that showed it, and fifty percent goes to the studio. Well, the studio is going to take that fifty million, and they're going to take a thirty percent distribution fee off the top. So they're going to take. What, what's whatever the 30% of 50 is, that's like another 30 million, or not quite 30, it's 15 million bucks, right? So they're gonna take 15 million off of 50. So now you're working with 35. So 35, and then the, let's say they said they spent $10 million marketing it. So the 10 comes off the 35. So now you got 25 left to play with that you're going to say, hey, that's profit, okay? Well, that 25, all of a sudden you take the cost of the movie. Let's say the movie costs $22 million to make. Well, that 22 million, now gets ground off the 25, so you got 3 million. You're like, great, we get to split up 3 million. Well, wait a minute, you only get 5% of 3 million that's ground down from net, but wait a minute, you owe us interest on the 30% that you we take the distribution and we owe interest on the 22 million that we just loaned you to make the movie. So that interest turns out to be, I don't know, $4 million because we're not very good at math, so we have to do a 20% interest fee because we can't figure out the real interest rate of four or 2% that everybody else is paying in the market. So you're going to pay $4 million in interest. So you know what? You owe us a million dollars. That 3 million net after interest and fees and shipping and all this other bullshit, uh, we are upside down by a million. But as soon as we get into the green, you're going to get a check. But that 30% and the interest and all the rest of it prevents you from ever making money. It's Hollywood math. Is it is it dishonest? Is it illegal? No, it's contractual. 
It's in your agreement. So for the guy who's investing or the woman who's investing in a movie, or if you're a writer who gets a net position, those positions never turn out to be anything because the distributor, the exhibitor, and all the people in the chain who make movies and actually physically distribute them and market them and all, all the rest of it are going to grind fees off of that so that you're the last guy at the end of the train who's ever going to collect a penny. And the agreements that are standard in the industry, and they're never going to change, those agreements prevent the participants, the people who have a net participation, whether it's an investor or a writer, director, actor, whatever, they will never see a dime. And they signed an agreement allowing that to happen. So, I, so the, the, the conventional wisdom in the industry is get as much money as you can up front because you'll never see a dime of it unless you're you know, Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams or um, uh, the director who created Inception, his name eludes me at the moment. Nolan. Um, Chris Nolan, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. And, or you're Chris Nolan. You may collect some kind of back end. And there's a few people like that. You know, the guys that, um, uh, the, guy, the producer who created Saw, another one. Those are net participants or they're gross participants, right? They get paid a dollar for every dollar that comes through the gate. Not all the time. Netflix doesn't do any gross participation deals. They do sometimes. With some other participants, they'll pay additional fees every time someone watches. But those are so, those are reserved for very select filmmakers who they have big deals with. So, as an investor, the mechanics of the industry, the people who are already in it, have been for years represented by professionals who have a lot of leverage, as in agents and managers. Those people will never see a dime. So, as a, a newbie investor who comes into the industry, do you really think? you're going to ever see a dime from the investment you make in creating that picture. So that, that's, the, that's the physicality and, the, and, the, and the, the playing field you're working in. That's the business of Hollywood. It's how it works, right? The mathematics of it. And I go through, in the last chapter of my first book, I go through a definition, an explanation of how 100 million grinds down to somebody owing you a million, or you owing them a million dollars, right? Um, I, I, and I've consulted for investors who wanted to invest in the movie business. And the, the other problem or the other, um, the other system that's built is that the way these deals are set up with filmmakers, and you can find some independents who are looking for money that you can make an investment in, the way these deals are set up, the, the, the structure of the company gives the filmmakers 50% ownership and control in how revenue is going to be carved up, how you're going to sell the picture and all the rest of it. So it incentivizes those filmmakers, the people you're investing in, to screw you because they know what the mechanics and the mathematics of the business are and they're never going to see a dime so what they're going to do is they're going to sell the movie to perpetuate their career and they don't really care about you making any money and they're in control of that entity that controls the intellectual property you create when you actually make the movie and you will you get you know you get a great deal 50 percent of all income that ever comes in well 50 percent of a negative million is still a negative five hundred thousand dollars you're never going to get your investment back Right. So the, the mathematics of the system and the way these private placement memorandums, which is what you're investing in and which is the agreement that lives within the entity, the way those two elements are structured, it is guaranteed that the average investor will never see a fucking dime. So if you're going to do it, you have to build the PPM and the structure of it in a different way, I think. And this is what I tell all of the consulting clients who want to invest in movies. You have to structure those deals as if you're a studio. So in other words, if you're, if you're the studio 
you're going to give the director, writer, producer, you're going to give them a total bank of 5% of the net, right? So the fact that they're getting 50 is a fucking gift and they control the entity. So who would do that? No studio would. The reason they want your money is because they're going to get a better deal with you as a private investor than they'll ever get anywhere. So you as an investor, you have the money. You have the thing they need. You are in control. The day you write the check to them is the day you hand them the gun. You have the gun holding to their head. When you write them a check in the PPM structure, the way it's currently set up, where the filmmakers control it and they have 50% and you get 50%, um, the, the way that's structured, what happens when you write the check is you hold a gun to their head. And then the day that happens, you hand them the gun and you let them hold it to your head. It's the stupidest financial and business transaction that exists on the planet. And I would tell any investor who sees any of those kinds of investments to either run screaming in the opposite direction or renegotiate it so that you're the studio, you control the entity, you control how cash flows, you control where the waterfall happens, you control who actually makes the sale, where you sell it to, what the terms of that sale are, and how much income you earn over time so that you're in control of your investment. Now, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a furniture owner in the Midwest, how the hell do you have the wherewithal to know how to do that? You hire people, lawyers, um, production accountants, people like me who do this for a living, who understand it, who know how to structure these deals to protect you. Don't go into those circumstances without finding a professional who knows how to work the system and knows who to contact to make a sale somewhere. And you should never invest in any content that hasn't already made a sale. If they can't make a sale, that means the industry doesn't want it right? If the industry doesn't want it, no one wants it. No one's going to buy it. The industry is really good at understanding what the market wants and whether or not it can make money. So if you're going to make, if you're going to invest in a project that no one's bought into, that's a train wreck waiting to happen with your money. And if that's what you want to do with, you know, if you want to take a large fortune and turn it into a small fortune, call me, I'll, I'll tell you how to, I'll tell you how to do it. Glad to do it. Yeah, they they, uh, they can contact me too. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll burn a million dollars real quick. So the short answer is if you want to invest in movies, um, I would suggest you not do it in the current cycle, that's the current system that's out there that is a private placement memorandum where the filmmakers control it. They split 50-50 after you get your initial investment plus 10% back. It sounds great, right? The fact is you're never going to see your initial investment. You're never going to see the plus 10%. No, and that's exactly it's uh, your answer solidified what uh, I I thought because I'm I'm reading this it's like for five thousand dollar investment this was a documentary person who contacted me and I'm like doesn't seem like the math works well for me in this scenario it seems like I'm just giving them five thousand dollars and I'll probably get a couple hundred if this thing's a hit maybe. <laughs> Well, flip it on its head. You give the $5,000, you create the entity, you do an agreement with them that they're going to deliver some project that they do a treatment. It just needs to be a page or two, whatever it is. They're going to deliver this project. And then you take that treatment out and go see if you can find a place. And maybe you pay them up a $500 or $1,000 to, um, to actually uh, control that, that property for some period of time to see if you can make a sale. If you can make a sale somewhere in the open market, then you might have something right? That's, that's the way you, that's the way we work in this business. There is not a single producer, distributor, financier in Hollywood who doesn't already know from the moment they say yes to that project, 
how much money they're going to make on the on at some point in time. Movie making is the business of movie making is a cash flow and timing problem. So when I get a green light on a movie from a network, my clients know exactly how much money they're going to make, how much money is going to come in and when. So if we're making a two or $3 million TV movie anywhere in the world, we know we're going to get a certain amount from tax credit. We're going to get a certain amount from a network, a certain amount from a foreign distributor that adds up to some number greater than the cost of the movie. The question is, how are we going to get paid? The foreign distributor is going to pay you out probably six months to 18 months out at the most. The domestic distributor or the network is going to pay you out over five periods or five terms from the time you start principal photography or from the time you start prep until you deliver. And then the tax credits are going to take anywhere from a couple of months to 18 months to get back. So the question is, how do you close that cash flow gap? The movie business, the business of making movies is a cash flow problem. You've got to spend the money in the front and you're going to earn it over a period of 18 months to 24 months. How do you figure that out? And how do you make sure that the cost of money doesn't eat into all of your profit? That's how the movie business works. And if you're not having that conversation with a filmmaker or somebody of that you want to invest in, you're not investing in a real project. You're investing in a pipe dream. You're investing in a thing you can sit around the table and say, I'm invested in movies and I'm going to sleep with the starlet. Good luck. <laughs> that's a, that's a high priced hooker. Uh, <laughs> it is. And you can do a lot better with um, many different ways of making investments in entertainment that don't involve investing in single titles. That's the other problem with this, that model is you're investing in one thing. Would you take a million dollars and buy, I don't know, um, pick an internet company that's a that isn't a unicorn yet, right? Would you do that? No, you're going to invest in five or six companies. Maybe Apple's one, maybe Amazon's another, but you got four others that might be moderately successful, right? The, and the other thing that is a, is a common misconception about the movie business is that 90% of the movies don't make money, but 10% make so much money, it pays for the other 90% or whatever the ratio is, 20, 80. It's bullshit. Like college sports. <laughs> it's total bullshit. More, almost every movie makes some amount of money. It may be break even, it may be 5% return. You have some movies that do lose money and sometimes they lose a lot of money, but the vast majority of projects make money. And yes, 10% of them make buckets of money. And we're talking about 10, 20, 30 times multiples that pays for all the overhead and all the others that make a 5% return or break even or have a small loss. You know, that's, that's the truth of the movie business. It's a cash flow business and you're spreading risk over multiple titles so that, you know, going into making a title, this movie is either going to be break even slightly profitable. And if it goes through the roof, fabulous, no one knows which ones are going to be 10 or 20 or 30 times multiples. There's anybody who tells you they think they are run screaming. They're full of shit. <laughs> well, Tim, I could, uh, I could probably talk to you for a long time, but I, I won't put you through that uh, Chinese water torture. Um, let, let my listeners know. I know you've got a book. Uh, I think you have a podcast. I know you have a blog. Uh, tell me where people can find you and uh, your wisdom. <laughs> well, you can find my, I write about the business and I write about the business of Hollywood and the goal of the blog. And you can find it at timtortora.com. And my last name is spelled T-O-R-T-O-R-A. Um, go to timtortora.com. You can find all kinds of social channels in the upper right of the page, and you can find the blogs that we release uh, twice a month. And it's about the business. It's about, this is how the movie business really works. 
So if you're coming here to build a career, to make an investment or whatever, this is how the industry works so that you understand who's full of shit and who's real. So when you're talking to people, if they're telling you, yeah, man, invest in my movie 50%, you know, you get paid back 10% plus your initial, you'll go, oh, wait, that's weird. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's the blog. Um, I don't podcast. I do, I do some podcasts with people like yourself. I love talking about the industry and I'm, my general goal in life is to train people about an industry that's a black box so that they can understand how to participate in it and not wind up getting hosed. That's ultimately, I, I want the sleazy con men to go back in the sewer where they belong. Like someone flipped the lights on a bunch of cockroaches in the kitchen. That's my goal. <laughs> and yeah, I just recently published a book and the book is about how to get connected in Hollywood. How do you build a career? How do you start a career? And that you can find at career.timtortora.com. You can read about it there. The book is 27 bucks and there's a Q&A you can buy in addition to it. And there's a community about filmmaking and getting connected with other filmmakers. It's a relatively recent one. We have a few people in it. And, I, and my goal is to build up the community so people can, again, learn about the industry, get connected and get networked. This is a business of networking and referrals. If you're not friends with people in the industry who are in power positions, you're not going to get jobs. It's just that simple. Yeah. And, and I, I, I lied because of something you said, I want to ask one more question. Yeah. <laughs> is the, um, the model of, I feel like TV and movies has always previously been, and maybe it's already outdated. You have to live in California or New York. Uh, everything gets done there. I know a lot of movies and TV shows are now shot in New Mexico and Georgia. Um, is there a, and I'm someone who also has started doing stand-up comedy this past year. Uh, mm -hmm. and that used to be the same thing. You gotta be in LA or New York or, or nothing's going to happen. And that's really shifted because it's like, well, I, COVID, I think spurred a lot of changes. Um, right. but also with the film industry, I think tax incentives spur a lot of changes. Um, do you, do you think, it's gonna, do you think it's kind of decentralized yet? Uh, or is it going to, as far as you want to be a writer, you don't have to live in California, New York, you can live in any place because we've got technology and, you know, you might have to fly someplace to do things, but I, I, I don't know if I actually formed a question, but you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. So the answer to the question is, <clears throat> excuse me, on sort of at a high level, the answer is yes. All the decisions, all the money comes from LA and New York. They're, that's not going to change. It will probably never change because the people who are making decisions about those businesses by and large are in those places because that's where the money is and that's where uh, the sort of industry has existed. That's where it's headquartered. I don't see that changing. You're right. The film, the tax incentives that exist around the country and they're in places like Georgia's a big one. North Carolina is another one. I'm sorry, New Mexico's another one. North Carolina has one, but it's weird. South Carolina does. Michigan used to. All of the provinces in Canada have it. There's a federal and provincial. Germany did. England did. Um, anyway, they're, they're all over the world, right? And if you're making movies, you're spending millions, the value of those tax credits is not trivial. In fact, most of the profit in almost all movie, in almost all TV shows, is hidden inside those tax credits. So you may spend two million dollars making a uh, a TV movie or a, an episode of a show, and you're going to get five hundred thousand dollars back uh, from a tax credit 
from labor or total spend or whatever it is, whatever the mechanism is, and the profit on that project may only be 200,000. So you have 500,000 coming from tax credits of which 200,000 is your profit. So you have a deficit finance of 300,000. That's a pretty common conversation as far as how tax credits impact the bottom line of shows, TVs and movies. So it's real money, it's, real, it, it's, it's a thing that every studio is chasing. When it goes away, it disappears. The Michigan tax credit went away or changed. It, the production disappeared from Michigan, disappeared from Detroit. So as long as those tax credits are in, in existence, California also has one, believe it or not. Um, as long as they're in existence, producers and studios and financing is going to chase it. However, let me, let me add a caveat to the New York and LA high level conversation. If you wanna build a career in Atlanta, Georgia, where there's lots of production, don't expect to go from Atlanta and move to LA or New York and be at the same level. So if you've worked your way up to production manager or a senior person in the crew uh, or producing, the likelihood you're gonna come to LA and New York and be at that level is slim to none. You're gonna come back and start all over again because you have to network within the system. This is a business of referrals and network. If you don't understand the people who are in the positions you can give you a job, you're, they're not gonna give you those jobs. So there's no two ways around it. If you wanna work at the highest level all over the world, you have to work in LA and New York. You gotta live here. In the beginning of your career, if you become an established writer, and I actually, my ex-wife um, had a dear friend who wrote a, a series for a cable uh, network. And he was here, wound up moving back to Cambridge, Mass. Um, well, his wife was, a, I think, a PhD candidate. Uh, and he did it successfully from Cambridge. He had a, you know, there was still some friction there because he wasn't in front of people's face. They wound up moving back. So um, I don't know if that's just because they wanted to live in LA and they wanted out of the snow and they were done getting educated, but they came back. Um, the point I'm making here is it's possible later in your career, but it is hard. This is a business of networking, out of sight, out of mind, the pandemic. I don't think the pandemic really has changed that. What it's done is it's made it possible for people to live all over the world. That's kind of been the case. You know, I know a lot of AD friends who live up in Montana and Idaho because they love that part of the country, you know, or Wyoming, but they work in Hollywood and they get shipped all over the world to go do what they do. But that's 10, 20 years on in your career, 10 years maybe. Once you've established yourself, and you're going to still spend time here. You're going to spend two or three months a year here, networking, connecting, you know, hanging out, FaceTime with the studios. So it's kind of yes and no, and it depends on what point in your career. But when you're young and you have a lot of available time and meeting people and being connected and networking is natural, easy, and just happens, you got to do it in LA or New York. And if you really want to play in the, in the sort of the, the biggest stream of the work, you got to do it in LA, not New York. Gotcha. Good, good answer. <laughs> yeah. Or, if you're young, or, come to LA, move here, you know, figure out how to make it work, figure out how to get a job and make a living and survive without being waiting tables, figure out how to get a job working in production. If that's your thing, don't wait tables. It's such a cliche and it's such a waste of time. You need to meet the people who can give you jo the jobs and you've got to understand who those people are and you have to understand how the industry works. There's a language, there's a, a method, there's a, a system work do whatever be a pa be a stand-in be an assistant to a writer director or a producer or the wardrobe department or prop department or whatever art department just get one of those jobs that's the way into the industry 
if you want to do it, no matter what you want to do, unless you come out of a big fuck off university and someone gives you a job like um, uh, Doug Lyman, perfect example, came out of USC, really talented. Um, he's an anomaly. He's an absolute anomaly. The rest of them, they work their way up from, from the ground. Hmm. Well, Tim, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to uh, meet you and speak with you. And uh, I'll link all of the things you talk about in the show notes. Uh, and again, uh, well, I don't know if I'll release, I'll probably release this. So happy new year when it happens. <laughs> all right. I love it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff. And, you know, like I said, I want people to succeed. I'd like people to come here, succeed, build a career, build a family and, and, and have a sense of accomplishment and not leave demoralized. I hear that happen all the time. And it just upsets me because I, you know, not everyone's going to succeed at this business, but at least if you try and you're in a channel of professional people and you don't succeed at that, or you decide you don't want to do it. This is not a business for everyone, by the way. And this is a young person's business. If you get to be 40 and you're looking around going, shit, this sucks. You're not alone. <laughs> so. Now that's a, uh, that's a, uh, a common story. I would assume. From yeah, <laughs> it is a common story and it, it, you know, it pains me. I'd like to see people come here and succeed if they can. No, that's perfect. All right, Tim, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you, Tim Tortora. That was a delightful uh, chat uh, on the podcast. And to be honest, Tim's really great guy. And we talked for, gosh, I want to say at least 10 minutes before the podcast and probably another half hour afterwards that he hung around and just uh, gave me some additional advice and, uh, you know, really easy to talk to and a uh, cool guy. Check out his uh, website, his book, follow him. Follow him on all the social medias. Sorry, I got a lazy mouth for a second there. <laughs> I always get on my daughter in the morning. She just slurs everything she says. And I'm like, you got to, your mouth has to wake up. It's, it's lazy. You're not saying your words right. Probably not a good thing to do if you were hosting a podcast. But, you know, I'm, I am recording this early in the morning, if that makes any difference. So you're hearing my voice on coffee uh, now, as opposed to when I was talking to Tim, I was uh, drinking Crown Royal Black. Uh, thank you, Angelique, for the Christmas present. So that'll do it for the Jeff Macalino podcast in 2021. Please subscribe. Follow me on all of those things, you know, the socials. Um, you can leave a rating for me now on Spotify or on Apple. And five stars is much appreciated. Um, and if you listen to me anywhere else, you know, I don't know if you can rate me or not. But if you do, I'll love you for it. Um, feel free to reach out to me with uh, any questions, comments, uh, insults, anything you want. If you uh, know someone who would be a great guest on the podcast, I'm I'm working. And this is what some of my uh, upcoming planning is going to be about. I'm working on potentially uh doing a uh kind of uh a somewhat different format moving forward it probably won't be the initial podcasts 
Um, but it might lead to uh, maybe getting two podcasts a week instead of one. So we'll we'll see uh, how that planning stage uh, goes. And then obviously you have to plan and then execute. So we'll see how that goes. Um, again, shout out to all of my guests, all of the great people I've interacted with, and all of you who listen to the podcast, especially if you listen this deep into the outro. You are a superstar and a saint. And, uh, I mean, if you're in New Orleans, you might literally be able to be a saint because they're really desperate for bodies because, you know, COVID. All right, everyone. Happy New Year. Peace.